morning. Uh, my name is Doug Reside. I'm not the usual uh, speaker here. I'm uh, just speaking today. Um, yeah. So uh, I think, as most of you know, uh, we've been reading through the book of Luke, uh, a very kind of a, with a great deal of depth, uh, kind of a small passage at a time. And so uh, this is, I think, about a year or maybe even a year and a half into the reading. And if this were a TV show, I think you might hear at this point, the, uh, after the theme song or whatever, the book of Luke, uh, previously in the book of Luke, uh, Luke 5.21, um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or Luke 7.20, uh, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Luke 7, 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Luke 8, 25, where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amaz amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. And, more, and just a couple weeks ago, Luke 9, 7 through 9, now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who is this then that I hear such things about? The book of Luke begin, uh, perhaps more so than in any of the other gospels, quotes people asking again and again of Jesus, who is this man? And now Jesus, having led his disciples through a series of mission trips, uh, that in Luke's telling most recently ended with each of them holding a basket of pieces of bread miraculously broken from five loaves, asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, some of you might know I'm really into musical theater. I work at New York Public Library and curate the theater collection there. Um, so I, I've been studying musicals for a long time. And if the book of uh, Luke were a musical, this scene would probably be the scene right before the finale of Act One. Before Mother Abbas sings Climb Every Mountain or the Russians break up Tevye's daughter's wedding or the fan of the opera drops a chandelier on the audience, the characters in the play have been fully introduced, their desires are understood to the audience, and the world in which they live has been established. The play seems to be going in one direction, and then something happens. A line is crossed, and the end of Act Two is suddenly inevitable, even if it isn't yet visible. Aristotle, in a book published about 300 years before the events in today's passage, wrote that good plays add complications through the first act until that climactic moment of unraveling when everything that has been built up until now begins to spin out of control until the final tragic resolution. And I think we're pretty much there. The transfiguration that Dick will talk about next week might be the big closing number of Act One, but this is the scene that sets it up. We've met Jesus, the teacher and the miracle worker, and his band of disciples, and they formed a happy little community going around doing good work. And everything that Jesus does so far is pretty amazing, but occasionally, at least to everyone around him, he sometimes pushes a bit beyond the bounds of what's wonderful into something that makes the disciples terribly afraid. And maybe behind all of this is the question of Messiah. As an American in my mid-30s, whose ancestors were at least nominally Christian as far back as I know, it's hard for me, I think, to fully grasp what's behind the longing for Messiah in Jewish history. It's probably closest to what some of us think of when we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but there's a, a political and physical element that, uh, for the longing of the Messiah that I think that's missed by most Christians. When I hear Jewish colleagues jokingly part company at academic conferences by quoting the Passover benediction next year in Jerusalem, 
That is, next year, perhaps the temple will be rebuilt and we can celebrate the Passover as it was meant to be. I get just a taste of what this longing must have been like and perhaps in some cases still even is. When Messiah comes, the Jews, God's chosen people, one of the most resilient and long-lasting races on the face of the earth will be avenged by a leader even more powerful and righteous than King David, who united the 12 tribes under one king and ruled from one city. Finally, Israel will be respected, even feared, and those who levy taxes will be forced instead to pay tribute to God's anointed, which is, by the way, what Messiah means in in Hebrew, and Christ means in Greek, the anointed one. So when Peter says, you're the Christ of God, he says, you're the anointed one of God, the one on whose head the holy oil has been poured, who is raised up like that crazy monkey Rafiki before all the animals so that uh, they may bow before the new Lion King. Christ, Messiah, the anointed one in the first century isn't just an honorific uh, for a holy man, it's a political title, and one that many had actually taken on in the time of Jesus. In Reza Aslan's best-selling 2013 book, Zealot, Uh, The author recounts uh, the tales of several failed messiahs who were put to death before Jesus. And in the book of Acts, the sequel to the book of Luke, um, the Pharisee Gamaliel references two two other messiahs who, who met their end. These men, inspired by political religious devotion to oppose an overwhelmingly superior political force, became, as we might predict based on today's newspapers, something like terrorists. And the wrath of the government reserved special punishments for them. Drug dealers or embezzlers are not generally waterboarded or sent to Guantanamo, and as far as I have read, murderers who killed their neighbors out of a personal grudge were not usually crucified. To claim to be Messiah or Christ was probably similar to claiming to be a jihadist. Sure, no, neither word necessarily means something violent, but it's not something you'd add to your Facebook profile unless you wanted a visit from well-armed men at an inconvenient hour. So at least in Luke, the, the word Messiah doesn't actually get brought up all that much. The angels tell the shepherds near Bethlehem that Messiah has been born. Simeon is told that he will not die until he sees the Messiah, and then he sees the baby Jesus at uh, the baby's circumcision, and he realizes that the promise has been fulfilled. The demons call Jesus the Holy One of God and the Son of God, two terms with messianic implications, but just before they're able to say Messiah, Jesus shuts them up before they can let out the big spoiler. And then the word Messiah isn't brought up again until Jesus uh, asks Peter who he thinks he is. What happened? Up until now, Jesus seems to be trying to keep quiet about um, who he is, uh, keeping a kind of low profile. And he, he often tells others that he heals to keep quiet even about their healing. But here he is seemingly trying to draw a proclamation of Messiahship out of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Why now? It's a quiet moment. There are no crowds crushing him, as uh, we heard earlier on. He's among a group of people who have seen enough of him to get that he's probably more likely to bless peacemakers and praise Roman centurions for their faith than lead a band of assassins against a high priest, as previous uh, failed messiahs had tried. So it's not a bad moment, but why is this the good moment? What's Jesus trying to accomplish here? Well, first, the rumors are flying around outside. We just heard that Herod was already beginning to ask who he is. Uh, who Jesus is, and the questions are probably being asked among the disciples as well. Who is this we're following? Who is this that walks on water? And then um, following Jesus is starting to get a little dangerous, and Jesus needs to let them know what they're in for. So he starts the conversation, and Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah! And no one has yet suggested that uh, Jesus might be Messiah without supernatural prompting, the angels or Simeon. 
And in fact, in Matthew, Jesus says that Peter's proclamation is also divinely prompted. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And Peter's proclamation changes things forever. The unraveling that will take place in Act 2 begins here. Jesus even gives Peter a new name and new authority. In Matthew, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter or Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But then he tells them not to tell anyone else. It takes a special divinely given shift in perspective to understand that the idea of Messiah that has built up over generations, over 400 years at least, has been wrong. That the salvation that is coming is not the political overflow, uh, overthrow of flesh and blood oppressors, but a transformation of the psyche, the Greek word that's often translated as soul, and heart that will free all from slavery and sin. Later at Jesus' trial, when the chief priests and teachers of the law say, if you're the Messiah, tell us, Jesus answers them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. Until someone understands what Messiah actually means, Jesus is careful not to let the word be applied to him with the wrong understanding. And it's clear how quickly this wrong understanding can take place. After Peter's profession, Jesus immediately begins to make it clear that, all, that like all the false messiahs that came before him, his path will lead to execution and to crucifixion. Now, he will rise from the dead, but until then, his story is going to look a lot like, a lot like the failed stories of messiahs before him and not so much like victory. And in preparing for this sermon, I felt like I got a glimpse of what Peter must have felt like when he was hearing this. He's just been told that God revealed, uh, that God revealed to him, Peter, that, he's going to the, that Jesus is the Messiah. And according to Matthew, he's been given a huge amount of authority. And of course, we can't know for sure, but I, but I imagine that Peter is happily considering that uh, idea in his mind and replaying it. Jesus said that he, a poor fisherman, has been moved to speak by God like, like a prophet of old. And he's just been given what appears to be divine authority over the whole earth. Whatever you bind on earth will bind in, bound in heaven. And it's a good feeling, but what responsibility? He's now in charge of the eternal destiny of everyone on earth. And he seems to have been called out as the first among the disciples. And what does that mean about his relationship to Jesus? He's the rock. Doesn't that mean he's supposed to be Jesus's confident and, confidant and supporter? The rock who supports him when he's too weary to go on? And now Jesus is telling his disciples not to tell anyone because uh, he's going to look like a failed Messiah? But didn't Jesus just say that the message that, that uh, Jesus is the Messiah is from God? Is Jesus trying to silence God's voice to say that you shouldn't tell anyone? And now he's beginning to talk that he's going to die. Could it be that Jesus is actually afraid? Well, then it's the rock's job to support him. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And in Matthew, this rebuke begins, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And perhaps it went on to say, you've got to get this message out. Look at the crowds, 4,000, 5,000, following you into the desert, even though there isn't any food. And you can make bread out of nothing. And you can raise the dead. Surely God won't let you fall. And you don't have to be afraid of your power. Just show it a little. And all of the kingdoms of the earth will bow down before you. And Jesus recognizes it. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. But not really to Peter. Satan had tried these uh, temptations before, before leaving Jesus, as Luke says in one of the most uh, ominous phrases in the gospel, until an opportune time. And Jesus says, get behind me. That is, get back into act one. I've already passed you up, and that intersection is already crossed. But of course, it is, it is and it isn't. The decision has been made, but it must be constantly remade. And this is what he tells the disciples. If you're going to keep on following me to this path of the cross, the crucifixion isn't even going to be a one-time thing. 
but a daily practice of turning away from the things you most need and of deliberately choosing suffering that will be literally excruciating, for that's what the word means, of the cross. Uh, whatever hopes and dreams uh, the disciples have for the future, they must now be prepared to impale and suffocate. Those were act one matters. Act two is the unraveling towards the consummation of the tragedy, towards death. But of course, there's a follow-up. Jesus reveals the ultimate spoiler. He will rise on the third day, and the Messiah's kingdom actually will come in the lifetime of those standing around him. And that phrase gets a little crazy, because in Matthew, he says, for the Son of Man is coming in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And man, has that verse caused some problems for disciples of Jesus over the last couple of millennia. So much so that the author of uh, Second Peter even quotes scoffers who were asking, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since they have since the beginning of creation. Now, theologians have offered many explanations for what this uh, verse means, and I can discuss them with anyone later. But briefly, I think this prophecy, at least in Matthew, is probably of two parts. Jesus will eventually come in judgment and in power, but earlier, Jesus will establish the kingdom. Later in Luke, Jesus makes it clear that the glorified coming of the Son of Man is distinct from the coming of the kingdom. In Luke 17, uh, we hear a story where once upon being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's already among you. Then he said to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So sometime after his generation rejects him, Jesus will come again in a way that like lightning across the dark sky will be unmissable to everyone from east and west. But in the meantime, the kingdom of God is to be a society that exists here within an earthly kingdom, and in fact is already here. It has not yet fully come on earth as it is in heaven, but its subjects live throughout the earth, and we can participate in it now. It's hard to notice sometimes, but it's real. If you've ever been close friends with or related to someone who's become a Christian, it's common, I think, to be a little startled when they react more gently or peacefully to events that might previously have provoked an angry answer, or when they begin to actively seek good. And many of us, and here I think I am the chief of sinners, seem to stall a bit after that first unbinding from sin. But ideally, more and more of the kingdom is also slowly conquering our will and reshaping it to be able to perceive and enjoy the present here and now kingdom of God. But this isn't what the disciples of the first century Palestinians wanted from the Messiah. They wanted to be released from very real physical bondage. They wanted to become the oppressors rather than the oppressed. And this is, I think, an important lesson to be learned from today's passage. Too often Christians in holy eagerness to establish the kingdom of God here on earth seek to do so by gaining political power. And certainly we may all pray that faithful disciples should be found working in every profession, politics included, but over the last 2,000 years we have seen that when Christians try to preempt the coming of the Son of Man by establishing his kingdom through political power, more harm than good results. The temptation to control all the kingdoms of the earth is one our master faced and put behind him. And his path, as far as it's been revealed to us, is one of relinquishing power and choosing suffering. For as his kingdom expands, the need for earthly kingdoms to enforce righteousness will diminish because more and more people will more and more willingly submit themselves to the decrees of the true king. Better to expand the kingdom by making disciples and by making 
uh, and by making them through doing the good works that God has planned in advance for us to do, proclaiming the good news that the battle against sin and death has been won, and by sincerely telling all that Jesus has done for us. And this, I admit, is incredibly hard. Making disciples mean that, means that we are associating ourselves with Jesus and by extension with Christianity. And so many people have so many wrong ideas about who he is and what Christianity represents. As Christians struggle to conquer the enslaved areas of our own selves, we sometimes go down the wrong path. Sometimes we presume to know what end God has in mind, and so we justify the means we use to get there. We can be rude, arrogant, unkind, or even deceitful as we seek to tell others what God has done. We bow, to, we bow down to the devil to win the kingdoms of the earth for Christ. And those who follow this path are rejected very reasonably, and all Christians become by association guilty. But still, we must associate with Jesus. Note that in this passage, Jesus does not warn against the very natural fear of the pain of persecution, but against being ashamed of him. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the, kingdom of, the Son of God will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Peter, for instance, we see, was willing to fight and die for Jesus, but when faced with the prospect of enduring the shame of being associated with a failed Messiah, he denied that he even knew uh, uh, the person whose Messiahship he was the first one to proclaim. Those who have caught a glimpse of the real Jesus may know how ridiculous Christians may appear to be and how ultimately indefensible many of our actual beliefs are. But even those of us who wince at being counted with the bigoted, ignorant, or cruel who call themselves Christians and might in fact be Christians, even when we see how foolish our faith must seem, we cannot turn away from its reality. We must still associate with the misunderstood Jesus who offends both the secular and the religious and risks being misunderstood ourselves. And in this issue, as with so many others that, I'm always, that I often end up having to teach on, I'm in fact the chief of sinners. In high school and in early college, I was the annoying evangelical kid who trotted out trot, tired and not terribly sophisticated arguments against evolution in bio, biology classes and asked non-Christian classmates apropos of nothing religious questions that often led, as far as I know anyway, to little more than awkward silences and my own self-congratulatory inner monologue that I was a good Christian crusader. Maybe in some instances I was right to ask the questions that I did, but I think that more often I was uh, more excited about getting a mental, mental Sunday school sticker that I could put next to my recited my memory verse badge. <laughs> but uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, my beliefs and act actions have changed fairly significantly. And now every time I speak in this church, I worry a little that the sermon is broadcast on TV and a colleague may happen upon it while channel surfing on a Sunday morning. I tend to be fairly circumspect about my faith with my colleagues, and I don't like Christian face, uh, posts on Facebook or tweet out Bible verses. And in this, I think I am somewhat following Jesus' example. After all, he too knew that being too open about his identity might lead to confusion, and so he was fairly careful about who he let in on the secret. As Christian novelist George MacDonald wrote, the time for speaking comes rarely, but the time for being never departs. But Jesus did not deny who he was, and he kept on being what God called him to be, and even this understated obedience led to the death reserved for false messiah types. It's a very fine line between the striving for self-righteousness through proselytizing and obedience to the Great Commission. But I'm pretty sure that presently I'm a bit too far on the side of silence. On this point, I'd appreciate your prayers for greater wisdom and, when appropriate, greater boldness. And I think that each, the prayer that each of us should pray for one another is that we may more accurately answer the question that Jesus asks of Peter, who do you say that I am? For the answer to the first question, who do people say that I am, does not matter as much until we can honestly answer the second one correctly. This is, I think, not an answer that we can get to on our own, and not one that, as Jesus said, is revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
I suspect that this revelation takes different forms for different people. For some, it may be as it was for C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, who, when her first husband called from his office in Manhattan to their home in Ossining to tell her that he wasn't coming home, felt her psychological defenses crumbling around her and experienced an almost mystical encounter with God. How can one describe the direct perception of God, she wrote? It's infinite, unique. There are no words. There are no comparisons. Can one scoop up the sea in a teacup? Those who have known God will understand me. The others I find I uh, cannot, can neither listen nor understand. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness. And I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from a sleep. So intense a life cannot be endured long by flesh and blood. We must ordinarily take our life watered down. My perception of God lasted maybe half a minute, but in that time, many things happened. I forgave some of my enemies. I understood that God had always been there, and that since childhood, I'd been pouring half my energy into the task of keeping him out. I saw myself as I really was with dismay and repentance, and seeing I changed. I have been turning into a different person since that half a minute, everyone tells me. I don't think that I have experienced such an intense encounter yet, or at least in, in my recent memory. But I have seen, often in retrospect, glimpses of God's hand guiding me through my life, lowering our defenses and trying to follow the path of Jesus so that we may become more familiar with him is, I think, our first task. Until we know him, we will have witnessed nothing and so have nothing to witness about. We have, uh, let us pray that, we, uh, that this revelation can come to each of us, not just in an, in an intellectual or propositional way that allows us to respond to the question, who do you say I, that I am with the Sunday school answer, the Messiah and the son of the living God, but also in an experiential way that allows us to add sincerely and my Lord and Savior.